David, appreciate you so much in the way you lead singing for us. And uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing is one of my all-time favorite songs, because, especially because of those last two verses in that song. And um, there's certain songs you probably have the same experience. Those verses, even though you've sung them a thousand times, still kind of stick you right here. And that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, that, that's one that uh, makes me emotional every time. We are indeed indebted to the grace and mercy of our God, and I'm so grateful that we have an opportunity here to gather together as his people and to thank him for that and to worship him and to give praise and honor to his name. So we are in the Gospel of John, been journeying through this Gospel for quite a while now. We are in chapter 5. We began that chapter last week. We're going to finish it this morning. So if you want to be turning over to John chapter 5, that's our text this morning. Before we do that, I've got some good news I want to share with everyone, and that is we've got some new members here with us. So Bob and Kathy Blackburn, if you guys would just stand up briefly, please. Uh, They have placed membership with us. Thank you, guys. They come to us from northern Orange County. Uh, they've been faithful servants in God's kingdom for a long time, and we're excited to labor alongside you guys. So if you have not had a chance to meet them yet, please go out of your way to do that today so you can build a relationship with them. We're very grateful for you guys. Thank you. So John chapter 5 is where we're at. Last week we began this chapter, and we were talking about how Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem yet again. He's therefore an unnamed Jewish celebration or holiday, one of the feasts. And while he's there, he encounters a man who is gathered along with several other people who have physical ailments of all different kinds. And he's there with these people because they believe there is a pool of water in Jerusalem that contains healing abilities. If they can just get into the water after the water is stirred up, they can find the healing that they're looking for. And this particular man that Jesus seeks out has been in that condition for 38 years of his life. And Jesus begins this conversation with him. And he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? And if you were here last year, you can remember this man's response is, I can't get there on my own, and I don't have anybody who will get me there. And so we learn from that story that there are problems that exist in this life that are too big for us to solve on our own, and there's problems too big even for the people who love us most to solve for us, but there are no problems too big for our God and our Creator. And so not knowing who it is he's talking to, Jesus then tells this man, take up your bed, get up, and walk. And what should be a cause of celebration instead begins this conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish authorities because he asked this man to pick up his bed on the Sabbath, and he healed this man on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish authorities catch wind of this. First, they confront the man. Why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to find that lesson online and watch it. And then, when they find out it's Jesus that performed this act on this man, now they've got a conflict with him. And the text starts off by saying it's because he was doing these things on the Sabbath that they began persecuting Jesus. And so he has a response to them, and we find that in John 5 and verse 17. It says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And that statement, instead of diffusing the situation, actually just causes them to get that much more upset with Jesus. And so the following verse says this, For this reason, they tried all the more to do what? To kill him. They're so upset with what Jesus is doing and what he's saying that they've decided the only way to stop him is to put him to death. So for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, 
making himself equal with God. And so that's where we left off last week, and I encouraged you to think about these two questions. Jesus called God his Father. They heard that as a statement of equality with God, and so he's guilty of not just breaking the Sabbath, but of blasphemy now, and they're going to put him to death because of that. So my questions were, were these. Why was Jesus' statement met, met with such a violent response? Why do they want to put him to death? And number two, why did they understand this as a statement of equality with God? And we talked about that a little bit last week. How is it that just calling God your Father means that you're calling yourself equal with God? I begin every prayer with Father in heaven. Am I claiming equality with God? No, of course not. So what was it about what Jesus said that made them believe that's what he was saying? And so we're going to explore that this morning. And what I'd like for you to see is what happens next. So in John chapter 3 is the first time we're kind of introduced to this idea, the idea of Jesus explaining his relationship with God the Creator as a relationship between Father and Son. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, through him the world might be saved. So Jesus begins all the way back in chapter 3 to kind of hint at the idea that I have come as a son to my father. But it's here for the first time in John chapter 5 that he really begins to elaborate on this relationship and explore it. And I would like for us to consider the nature of that relationship together this morning. What follows in John chapter 5 is one of, I think, the most powerful and richest texts that we find in all of the Gospel of John. And that's coming from a text that we usually don't spend a lot of time talking about. It's one of those, I hate to say it, kind of throwaway texts in a lot of time, in a lot of ways. We talk about the first part of John chapter 5, we talk about the second part of John chapter 5, but what Jesus says here embedded in the middle of this chapter is really profound. And we don't have time to do justice to it this morning. I want to explore it a little bit, but I want to strongly encourage you to do something that maybe you haven't made a custom yet in your life. We talk a lot about Bible study. I would ask that you study this passage, but I would like you to do something more, which is to meditate on this passage, to spend time in this passage in a way that allows it to transform your thinking. Really spend some time thinking deeply about what it is Jesus is saying about his relationship with God the Father in this chapter. And so exactly what is he saying? So we get to John chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 19 if you'd like to follow along with me. John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. What is he talking about? Greater works than what they just saw happen. This man who was crippled for 38 years suddenly rising and walking. He says, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And so Jesus is elaborating on the very thing that they have a problem with, the idea that he referred to God as the Father and made himself equal with the Father. And he says, okay, let me explain this further to you. And he goes into this explanation of his relationship with the Father, where make no mistake about it, he is not backing down from the idea that he is claiming equality with God. On the contrary, he's making exactly that statement because look at what he's saying God has given him to do. To judge, to bring about resurrection, and to give life as he sees fit. These are things only God the Father has the right to do and yet Jesus is saying these are the things the Father gave for me to do. And so you can understand for a group of people who have not yet come to terms with Jesus' full identity, they think this is blasphemous. Because these are not the kind of claims that the average person gets to make. Of course, Jesus is not the average person. This is what this whole conversation is about, right? That he really is who he claims to be here. The Son of God. The Son of Man, as he refers to himself in this text. And as Jesus is making these claims of divinity, talking about these things that God the Father has given him to do, all of that results in one very important thing, that people would learn to honor the Son the same way they honor the Father. That's an even bigger and bolder statement. There's this passage I love so much. It comes in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, John, who's writing the Revelation, talks about how he's given this glimpse into the throne room of heaven a door in heaven is opened and he gets to see God seated on the throne and all of those spiritual beings gathered in heaven are gathered around the throne and they're doing one thing they're giving glory and honor and praise to the one who sits on the throne and they're singing a song and the song is worthy are you God and then we get to chapter 5 and God takes this scroll and the scroll is sealed and the question is asked, who is worthy to open this scroll? And no one in heaven or on earth is worthy of opening the scroll. And John begins to weep because I want to know what's on that scroll and no one is found worthy to open it. But then we hear this proclamation. Wait, we found someone worthy. The Lion of Judah who has conquered. He is worthy to open the scroll. And so what happens is Jesus is introduced to us. In the throne room of heaven. But the Lion of Judah doesn't stroll in like a conquering lion. Do you remember how he's described in that chapter? As a lamb that was slain. What does a lamb that was slain look like? It's a lamb covered in his own blood. This conquering lion is actually a sacrificial lamb. But what happens is as Jesus is introduced into the throne room, the song that they were singing to God on the throne, they now divert to Jesus. The Lion of Judah the lamb that was slain. And they begin to sing to Jesus, worthy are you. And that's what Jesus is talking about 
here. That all of those things that God, that God the Father has given Him the Son to do, to accomplish on earth, are meant to bring about the same kind of honor and respect given to the Father would now be given to Jesus the Son. And so you think about them hearing this for the first time, the claims that Jesus is making, and if they are not willing to acknowledge who Jesus is, of course they're angry. Because He's making claims that human beings don't get to make. Jesus is human, but he's divine as well. And the whole point of this passage is trying to get them to understand that he does get to make those claims because he is exactly who he says he is. So the question I want you to think about, kind of reflecting on everything Jesus just said in that text, is what is Jesus really trying to get them and us to understand about his relationship with the Father? Is it a relationship primarily of equality or is it a relationship of unity? And is there a difference? So a few things to think about. John chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first statement John makes as he writes his gospel, as he introduces the life of Jesus to us, is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's unity. But what does he say? And the Word was God. That's equality. So he's making a statement about both of those things. Yes, Jesus is unified with God the Father, but he's also equal with God the Father. He was with God, and he was God. So he's talking about both of those things. Later on in John chapter 8, which is kind of where the conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish authorities really comes boiling up to a head. This is where things start to get fiery. One of the statements he makes in that passage is this. They asked him, where is your father? And this is his reply. You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied, because if you knew me, you would know my father also. That's a statement of both equality and unity. And then, of course, John chapter 10 and verse 30, he just says right to the point, I and the Father are one. Well, that's a statement of unity, right? But is it a statement of equality as well? What exactly does he mean by statements like that? I and the Father are one. And how are we supposed to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Is it one of equality or is it one of unity? And I would say it's both. It's both of those things. Jesus is equal with the Father, but not independent from him. That's what Jesus is trying to illustrate to us here in all these statements about how he came to do the Father's will, about how he can't do anything apart from what the Father has given him to do. He's equal with God, but that's not his way of braggadociously saying, I'm equal with God, therefore I can do whatever I want. No, he came to do the will of the Father. So he is equal with the Father, but he's not independent from him. The same goes for God's relationship with the Son. He is equal to, but not independent from. And the second thing I would have you think about is this. Jesus is equal to the Father, but he is also in submission to him. When Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, as John talks about in the prologue, he took on the role of humility and submission. And we'll explore that more in just a second. In John chapter 5 and verse 19, so we've got these bookends. The first thing he says and the last thing he says in the context of these statements that he just made. The first comes in verse 19. Listen to what he says again. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does not operate independently from the Father. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also 
does. And it's this bigger theme we find in John. We'll talk about just in just a second. If you want to see God the Father at work, look to the Son. That's God the Father at work. And then this end, the other bookend here, comes at the end in verse 30 where he says this, By myself I can do nothing. The same idea. I judge, but I only judge as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus the Son and God the Father are one, and they are equal, but they are not independent from each other. That is not what Jesus is trying to establish. He's not establishing independence from the Father. He's trying to show us just how united they are in mind and purpose. And then there's this, Philippians chapter 2. Would you tune over there with me quickly? There are, well, let me say this. I believe firmly every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. But there are, you will acknowledge, passages in Scripture that you find more profound than others, right? They're the bumper sticker passages, the ones we like sometimes unfairly to take out of context because we like them so much. We put them on our bathroom mirrors. We put them on T-shirts. We do whatever. We, we elevate them over the status of some other Scriptures because they're more impactful and meaningful to us. And maybe that's unfair a lot of times, but sometimes I think it's true that there are certain texts that are worth really highlighting, sometimes literally. Some of you guys have Bibles right now you're reading from that are probably filled with highlighters, right? Why do you highlight certain passages? Because you want to remember those. You want to pay attention to those. Philippians chapter 2 is one of those highlighter passages for me. This is, I think, a supremely important passage. And I want to share it with you this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I want you to think about how this ties in with everything we're talking about this morning. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So if you've got a pen, if you've got a highlighter, and you're one of those people, start highlighting. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another. So this is what Paul is saying. I'm encouraging you to do the very opposite of what humans usually do in the way that they interact with each other. And I want you to do it because Christ set the example for you. So in verse 5 he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We don't get to emulate everything about Jesus. We can never, like Jesus did, make the claim that we are one with the Father as if we are equal with the Father. That's not something we get to imitate and emulate about Jesus. But there are certain things about him, if we're going to follow Jesus, that we should be following the example of. And this is one of those things. These are one of those things Jesus did that we can certainly strive to imitate in our own lives. And it's this. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he says, who? Being in very nature God. NIV is a little clunky there. The ESV says who was in the form of God. Again, it's a statement of equality. It's the same thing John is saying in John 1.1. He was with God and he was God. But even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, remember we talked about everything Jesus says in John chapter 5, all of the things he came to do and accomplish, the will of the Father in his life, he did so that people would give him the respect that the Father had given him. And this is what he says. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus is Christ. What does that mean? He is King of heaven and earth, that there is no name higher than the name of Jesus. We see it come to fruition in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 when the spiritual beings are acknowledging worthy are you. But Paul is saying there's going to come a time when every knee on this earth will bow and give honor and glory and praise to the name that is above all names. God has exalted him to the highest place because he humbled himself to the lowest place. This is what Paul is saying. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand about his relationship with the Father. He is equal to the Father, but not independent from him. And when he came to earth and took on flesh, he accepted a role of humility so that he would only strive after one thing, the will of the Father. And that took him all the way to the cross. But we serve a Christ who is on this side of the cross this side of resurrection. We serve the Christ that is no longer in that tomb, and he has been raised to the highest place. That is what we proclaim to this world, that every knee must bow. Won't you bow your knee to the name above all names? So this is what Jesus is getting across in John chapter 5. And then he goes on, and I'm going to cover this part quickly because we've got something really important we're going to do at the end of service this morning. In the end of John chapter 5, something really interesting happens. So Jesus understands they're going to have a problem with everything he said. This is, this is big stuff to try to come to terms with and wrap your mind around. And so you can't make claims like that without giving people some reason to believe in the claims you've made. And so Jesus says this in verses 31 and 32, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testi testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Years ago, there was an author, Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Some of you maybe have read it. It's a, a very influential, very great book. And we, live, we are spoiled today because we live in the golden age of Christian apologetics. All this information available to us to bolster our faith. But Strobel writes that book kind of from the viewpoint of a lawyer. And if I were going to put Christ on trial, what would the evidence be that I would bring in favor of his claim to be the Son of God? And again, I encourage you to read the book sometime. Some people read this like that's exactly what's happening. The Jews have put Jesus on trial, and so he's marching out these witnesses to say, you can believe me. I know you can't take me just at my word, even though they should be able to. So let me give you some witnesses that will testify in my favor. And he begins to run through this list of witnesses. I encourage you to just write these down and explore them on your own when you get some more time. Number one, John the Baptist. He says, you have sent to John, and he testifies to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I'm not the only one making these claims. John came before me, and he made these claims. If you cast your mind back to chapter 1, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Or even more to the point in verse 34, I have seen and testified, John says, this is God's chosen one. This is Messiah. Number two, the works. 
So he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Let's not forget how this whole saga begins with Jesus doing what? Telling a man, arise, pick up your bed, and walk. And again, instead of celebrating that healing, what do they do? They criticize him for being a lawbreaker. But the very works that he was doing testify to his identity. Then he goes on, he talks about the Father. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one that he sent. That's a damning statement for him to make against those Israelites. But I want you to cast your mind back to the prologue again in John chapter 1. He's just saying the same thing John said as John introduces Jesus to us. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. How can you ever come to know the Father if you reject the identity of the Son? You can only know the Father through the Son. And so he's telling them, point blank, you have no idea who God is because you refuse to acknowledge who I am. You cannot know God unless you come to know the Son. And just a question to think about. Who can be an adequate witness to God except God himself? You ever thought about that? How are you going to put God on trial, honestly? Like what evidence are you going to bring forth to prove God's existence? There's no higher authority than God, so who are you going to appeal to other than God himself? There's something to think about. Then he goes on, he says, what about Scripture? You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Scriptures testify to who I am. And you go to Scripture because you think you have life in Scripture, but you don't have life because you haven't been led to me. Scripture itself does not contain life. Scripture does not give life. But Scripture contains the source of life. That being Jesus the Christ. Scripture points us to Christ. But if you read Scripture and you never arrive at who Christ is, then have you ever really found life? No, you haven't. And that's what he's accusing his audience of here. Scriptures don't bring us life. They point us to the one who does. And then he goes kind of on an aside here for a few verses. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is saying, if you think you're going to put me on trial, there's a problem here. Because you're not worthy of putting me on trial. There's nothing trustworthy about you. You can't be trusted to come up with the right verdict because you're more interested in the glory that comes from humans than you are in the glory that comes from God. And that's still true today. We as humans treat the existence of God as if it's a thing that is only true if the very smartest people among us say that it's true. And what a ridiculous way to approach the existence. The creator can only exist if the creation says he can? No, that's foolish. And Jesus is acknowledging that here. Why am I going to let you put me on trial? You can't be trusted because you're not seeking glory from the right place. And then the last place he goes, the last witness he brings up is, is Moses. In John chapter 1 and verse 45, as we're introduced to the first followers of Jesus, it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. What is he talking about? When Moses said, God will raise up 
from among you a prophet like me, and you have to listen to him. They associated that with coming Messiah. And so what is Philip saying here? We have found Messiah, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus appeals to Moses and says, Moses testified about me. And then this is how he ends. He says this, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you ever going to believe what I say? And I want you to consider something about this whole passage. Who's really on trial here? Is this really a case of the Jews putting Jesus on trial and now he's got to prove who he is? I would suggest to you the exact opposite is happening. We think we get to put God on trial. But in fact, it's God through Christ that will hold us in judgment one day. We are the ones on trial. There is a trial taking place in this chapter, but it's not Jesus on trial. It's the Jewish authorities. He brings his case in front of them so that they might be found guilty unless they accept who he is. He says, I don't even need to accuse you. You've already got someone standing and accusing you, and it's Moses. And if you never believe what Moses wrote about me, what does it matter what I say? You'll never believe me either. And so all of us stand at the judgment seat of our God and our Creator and our Savior. One day we will answer for the evidence presented to us and the way that we reacted to it. Do you believe the claims that Jesus made about himself. And here's the most beautiful part about all of this. Back in verse 22, what does Jesus say? Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And there's no one I would rather be judged by than Jesus the Christ. He wants to rule in my favor. And I know that because he died on the cross so that he might proclaim me innocent. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand the claims that he's making? He is the Son of God. He is God having taken on flesh. He came equal with the Father, but submissive to him, so that he might teach us who God really is. A God who loves without end. A God whose grace and mercy should be the hallmarks of our life. A God on whom we depend for everything and a God who one day will hold us accountable for the way that we reacted to the gospel when it was proclaimed to us. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, that he lived a sinless, perfect life, that he died on our behalf, that he was raised three days later, and that he is coming to take us home if we put our faith in him. Put your faith in Jesus this morning. I'm pleading with you. This is the evidence presented to you. How will you respond? I encourage you to think about that. David, do we have another song? Yes. Okay, why don't we stand together, and as we think about this, and as we prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, we're going to take in just a moment. Let's stand and let's sing together.